0: Hello and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists.
1: PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical
0: updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri.
1: Hey, welcome back to
0: the PTCE Pharmacy Connect. We're going to be continuing a conversation, a review of targeted therapies for early stage breast cancer. And before we started recording, I was so excited that I got to meet up with Dr. Lara Bobolt at the Assembia Specialty Pharmacy Conference. And there were sessions that were actually talking about expanded treatment for options for early stage breast cancer, including targeted therapies based on breast cancer subtypes. Dr. Babolt, it's so fun to have you here um, leading today's discussion. It was so good seeing you.
1: I'm excited to be here today to discuss the emerging treatment landscape of early stage breast cancer and strategies to overcome treatment challenges that people may see in clinical practice. And today, I'm pleased to introduce our faculty, Dr. Allison Butts, PharmD cop. She is a clinical pharmacy specialist in breast cancer and clinical pharmacist manager at UK Healthcare Markey Cancer Center in Lexington, Kentucky. She'll discuss targeted therapies, where they fit in the treatment paradigm today, how to choose amongst all of the wild treatments that we have, especially based on patient specific factors such as different subtypes of early stage breast cancer. So we'll also discuss how to mitigate certain toxicities. Dr. Botts, thank you so much for being here today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the, your practice experience with your breast cancer patients.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Happy to be here with both of you today to talk about breast cancer, my favorite topic, certainly. Um, I've, like you said, been a breast cancer specialist at, here at UK Healthcare for about eight years. Um, we see pretty much everything. Our center is a comprehensive center where we see the medical oncology patients and sirg in the same physical clinic space, and rad is not far away. Um, So I think that really lends itself to true comprehensive care for these particular patients. Um, Again, seeing the whole spectrum of patients with different stages, different subtypes, um, and really a lot to share with you all today.
1: Wonderful. And with our treatment armamentarium for early breast cancer constantly expanded, expanding and being determined by biomarkers such as estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2, which is human epidermal growth factor receptor 2. Allison, what are the differences in risk between those different breast cancer subtypes?
0: Yeah. So this is really the first way that we start to subdivide out breast cancer and think about different risk stratification. Um, The first thing I tell any learner who's on rotation with me is do not be fooled. Breast cancer is not one disease. It's three, four, five, kind of depending on uh, how you think about things, how we are learning more every day about breast cancer. It's very heterogeneous. Um, So I think starting off talking about these different subtypes that you mentioned, hormone receptor positive, definitely the most common. Over 65% of cases are hormone-driven, and those cases tend to be your more indolent diseases, um, earlier stage at diagnosis, slow-growing, and thus they have the best survival rate, so over 90% if we look at our five-year all-comers. So that's the first subtype. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, then, is going to be our triple negative patients who don't express the hormone receptors nor the HER2 receptor. Um, That tends to be about 10% of our patients. Very aggressive diseases, historically more difficult to treat and prevent from coming back, and thus lowest five-year survival rates of about 77%. In the middle, then, is where we get our HER2 patients, um, HER2 being a target that we've had for several years now, and that's certainly revolutionized treatment, and we'll talk about the different treatment options for them, I'm sure in this talk, um, historically a very aggressive, fast growing subtype as well, but much more treatable. And so those survival rates fall in about the 85 to 90%, depending on if we're saying that they are HER2 only or HER2 positive and hormone receptor positive, both.
1: Thank you so much for that. And speaking about your hormone receptor positive early breast cancer patients, how complicated is it to treat those patients in your perspective? And how are those patients risk stratified?
0: Yeah, so I would say that hormone receptor positive is increasingly complicated because we have more information that we could ascertain from their tumors than we ever have before. And one of the biggest developments with that is our risk stratification tools that are genomic tests that help us to better uh, categorize, better predict what their tumors are going to do. So the one that we use most commonly is the 21 gene recurrence score or Oncotype DX um, gives us a recurrence score that tells us basically is chemotherapy going to add benefit to this patient or will they do just as well with endocrine therapy alone. Uh, print or the 70 gene signature assay is somewhat related to that kind of similar concept but we're looking at genomic risk versus our standard clinical risk that we've been using for years to again, risk stratify these patients and decide if we should be more aggressive or if we could back off a little bit with their treatment. Um, there's a number of other assays out there even looking at things for how long do we give endocrine therapy that's a hot topic. Uh, we've got the breast cancer index that can be used to give us more guidance on that really just a heap of different tests that are out there to allow us to risk stratify beyond your typical stuff of how many lymph nodes do they have positive, how big is their tumor, that sort of thing that's been out there for you know decades and is part of cancer treatment for all different disease states. Uh, but yeah, we know a lot more about hormone receptor positive disease and that this, again, is probably multiple different subtypes that we don't even fully recognize now.
1: That's fantastic. There are so many different tools that you can use to risk stratify patients. I love it. Now, how about your HER2 positive early breast cancer patients? What factors are used to risk stratify those patients? And talk to me a little bit more about treatment options for those patients.
0: Yeah. So HER2 risk stratification is still largely based on staging, I would say, um, but we have a lot more treatments. So knowing if the patient is node positive is a big factor. Um, again, how large is the tumor? Has it spread anywhere else? Uh, But another key risk stratifier that we have now is also their response to neoadjuvant therapy. So if we back up a step and look at the different treatment options for our early stage HER2 positive disease, one of the first decisions that we have to make is are we going to treat them with surgery first and then chemotherapy, typically reserved for your stage one, your early stage patients that have a really good prognosis. Or is this a patient that we need to treat up front with neoadjuvant therapy to shrink that tumor down, prevent further spread, et cetera. So that's kind of step one, and that could lead us to a couple of different chemotherapy regimens, including just a one chemo agent Paclitaxel Trastuzumab for adjuvant use in really early stage patients, or up to a four drug regimen with docetaxel, Carbo, Trastuzumab and Pertuzumab, which is pretty commonly used in the early stage setting. Um, From there, like I alluded to, knowing how they responded to that therapy is critical as a risk assessment tool. Um, A little bit of debate in terms of how much stock we should put in that, but it does greatly affect our treatment options. From the Catherine trial, we know now that we can give adjuvant TDM1 or trastuzumab mtansine to patients with residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy, and that could significantly improve their long-term outcomes. So that's a very key indicator to make sure that you're assessing We also have more and more data about our dual antibodies, trastuzumab, pertuzumab. When do you need to add pertuzumab? When do you not? It seems like node positivity is a big um, determinant with that. Uh, Generally, we are not going to give a year of pertuzumab if they're node negative. Um, So that's something that we definitely want to key in on. And then one final treatment that I'll mention is neratinib. Neratinib is an oral anti-HER2 therapy that's been on the market for quite a while now. And we use it for potentially extended adjuvant therapy. So patients who are extremely high risk are going to get their one year of anti HER2 monoclonal therapy, and then you may consider giving them another year of this oral neratinib to try and improve their outcomes. Um, so many different options. As with everything, it gets increasingly complicated when something new comes to market because you don't know how that maybe impacts patients who are treated differently than how it was studied. So, for example, neratinib came out before this adjuvant TDM1 period. So we don't really know, do you give TDM1 for these high-risk patients and then give them neratinib? Does that benefit them or not? Um, So it seems like anytime you get a new therapy, you get more questions that need to be answered as well. Very complex, um, but really exciting time for HER2-positive disease, I think.
1: Absolutely. And that's breast cancer for you, right? We're (laughs) always learning new data and adjusting our models and how we treat our patients. But that's the best part about it is we have new options for our patients constantly. Yeah. Wonderful. So you mentioned earlier about triple negative breast cancer. So when our patients are ER negative, PR negative, and HER2 negative, very aggressive subtype. Talk to me about newest developments in the treatment of early stage triple negative breast cancer.
0: Yeah, there's two that come to mind and those are pembrolizumab. The immunotherapy age has certainly um, solidified its role in breast cancer finally. And then rib for patients with a germline BRCA mutation. I think those are the two biggest development in the last couple of years anyway. Um, so our pembrolizumab regimen is a lengthy one. It's another one-year regimen. So patients are getting upfront treatment with carboplatin, paclitaxel, and pembrolizumab. And then they're getting the AC uh, portion of that regimen still with pembrolizumab. They go on to surgery, and then they continue on pembrolizumab. And I think one of the key questions is about who should get the full year of pembrolizumab. At this point, everyone does. That's how it was studied. Whether you had a complete response, whether you have residual disease, that pembrolizumab is going to go on for a total of a year for everybody. Um, So some questions still to answer there. But regardless, that keynote regimen has really uh, really impacted the complete response rates for our patients. Again, how much we should rely on that as a long-term indicator. Some people feel differently about that, but it's definitely something that's really important and has changed the game. Uh, The other therapy I mentioned then is our PARP inhibitor, Olaparib, which has an adjuvant indication now for hormone receptor positive and triple negative patients with a germline BRCA mutation. Um, And that's something else that we've started adding into the mix too and does have an overall survival benefit. Uh, So very important that we're watching out for that and considering that treatment as well.
1: Absolutely. Let's take it back to the discussion with Pembrolizumab and Keynote 522. Now, in my wild world on the managed care side, when we're doing authorizations for our payers, we see various regimens requested neoadjuvantly with Pembrolizumab. The FDA indication that came out after the Keynote 522 data was very broad, but we do see most Clinicians following what you mentioned with carboplatinum, paclitaxel, and pembrolizumab, neoadjuvant, followed by dose AC and pembrolizumab. Sometimes we see the every three week AC and pembrolizumab that followed more keynote 522, but dose AC had been more of a go to for clinicians prior to that study design, which, you know, who knows why they picked the every three week AC. Maybe it was because EC was also studied in that studying Keynote 522 that's only given every three week more commonly. But what are you seeing in your practice? Are you seeing every three week AC portion being that doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide with the neoadjuvant pembrolizumab or are you seeing dose dense meaning every two week AC in combination with pembrolizumab part of that regimen?
0: Yeah, and I think they, my theory has been that they did the three week AC because the Pembro was every three weeks so it just aligned better. Um, And that's how we have been administering it typically at our center is the every three week uh, with Pembro. That being said, we're transitioning. We're waiting for IT to hopefully get the order set built out here any day now to be able to do the dose dense AC and then give the Pembro every six weeks. So you're still um, aligning things. It just looks a little bit different. And honestly, the main reason that I was hesitant to do that for a while was just insurance approval wise. We know it was studied every three weeks. And so I had some concern about if we try to do dose dense AC, is it going to be approved? Is the needle going to be approved? Um, so that was, that was definitely a concern, but it seems like institutions are using the dose dense successfully. Um, so we're planning to do that in a number of patients. I think another concern or just something else to be aware of is this is a very toxic regimen. They're getting four chemotherapy drugs over the course of their neoadjuvant treatment, and that can cause a lot of cytopenias. Um, So with that, I think we were adding growth factor a lot, even with the Q3 week AC, when we typically would not have to, but people were just struggling to maintain their counts after having gotten 12 weeks of carbotaxol as well. Um, So that was another reason that we started thinking more about just going ahead and doing the dose dense because we were adding growth factor anyway. So cost wise, it ends up being neutral. Um, and, you know, as you kind of alluded to, we know dose-dense AC has been a standard for neoadjuvant triple negative cancer, has some better efficacy. So if we could do it that way, we would like to. But uh, definitely a range of practices, I'm sure, throughout the country on that front.
1: Absolutely. We see a whole spectrum of mm-hmm. different chemotherapy strategies with that neoadjuvant pembrolizumab. And, you know, I got you back on the insurance side <laughs> because the FDA indication is very broad with pembrolizumab in early stage, triple negative breast cancer. It just says in combination with chemotherapy, it yep. does allow for coverage, irrespective if the provider wants to consider Q3-week AC or Q2-week AC. Sure. But I love how you talked about the toxicity impact of using that on carboplatin prior to moving on to the AC with pembrolizumab. Now, along those lines, have you seen strategies where they have flipped that regimen doing the AC portion with pembrolizumab first, followed by the carboplatin and paclitaxel portion with pembrolizumab neoadjuvantly. And any inferences on how that may affect the outcome if the provider does flip that sequence?
0: Yeah, and that's definitely something that was different with this regimen. I know there's some institutions that were doing the tax same followed by AC with or without carboplatin. Uh, whereas most of us have done the traditional AC followed by the taxane. Um, so that was definitely different. Um, so I think they're practically, I think people are following the Keynote 522 regimen and doing the carbotaxol first. Again, that's how it was studied. There's some some pharmacologic reasoning behind it. Uh, but I think there is also data and reason to believe that this might change in the future. Um, there were a couple of studies in Passion 031 and Gepar Nuevo that gave a um, immunotherapy with taxane followed by anthracycline and cyclophosphamide. So just without the carbo in that particular situation. But then we also have the ex- Alexandra and passion zero three zero that looked at a TZO with dose dense AC followed by T. So going back to that more traditional order and again, dropping the carbo. Uh, because again, we don't know. We don't know if carbo is really necessary. How much benefit does that add? Can we remove that and get less toxicity? Um, Does the order matter? All those things are unanswered questions. So just as before, as you get more data, you get more questions. So a lot more to answer.
1: That's how it goes in oncology in general, right? The more data, the more complex it gets. (laughs) But what if? I know, but that's why we love it, right? It keeps it interesting. It's always new and fresh. Yeah. Awesome. When you were talking about the new data with Olaparib in BRCA positive HER2 negative early breast cancer, I noticed that NCCN added a footnote to their guidelines because as we get new data, then we're left with these questions. Okay, well, what do we do if our patient's on the adjuvant portion of pembrolizumab, which is commonly single agent, according to Keynote 522, but what if we find the patient's BRCA positive? You mentioned there's a survival benefit with using adjuvant olaparib, but what about the combination of olaparib and Pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting, or even data on patients with capecitabine and uh, in that setting, if the patient has residual disease after surgery with triple negative breast cancer, early stage. So with NCCN, they added a footnote stating there's no data on sequencing or combining adjuvant pembrolizumab with capecitabine or olaparib. Olaparib, again, if BRCA positive, but they mentioned use may be considered in certain patients with high risk of recurrence. From a payer's perspective, when NCCN puts a footnote, but they don't translate that data to their compendium and their compendium justifies insurance coverage while their guidelines guide therapy selection, but does not justify insurance coverage. That leaves us in an awkward predicament from the payer side. But I will tell you, I have seen a lot of our oncologists representing the payer on a case-by-case basis, understanding, okay, I do see this patient is a high risk of recurrence. It does make sense in certain circumstances to support the approval of Olaparib in combination with Pembrolizumab. But I'm really wondering at your institution, how do you handle that conundrum of if my patient's on the adjuvant portion of pembrolizumab, do I add the olaparib if they're BRCA positive?
0: Yeah, a conundrum is a great great way to put it. And that was another question we had when this regimen, the 522 regimen came out, was do we need to figure out if they're BRCA positive first? Because do we need to not give PEMBRO if they are a germline BRCA positive because we're going to give a lab how do you manage that? So of course, as we get more experience and you get more comfortable with things, it becomes um, less daunting and less confusing, but there's still that unanswered question. So you brought up capecitabine as well. Um, There is some safety data with capecitabine and pembrolizumab. So I think across the country, that was a more acceptable combination um, from a safety standpoint. And I think a lot of people adopted that in the absence of data to say that you should not. Um, We've been using capecitabine for that um, residual disease indication for so long, it just felt appropriate, natural to continue to give it in that scenario. But we don't know; it might not be doing anything. And again, like I mentioned, we don't know if you should continue pembro with residual disease or not. So that's part of it. But then the bigger question that I think people are less comfortable with is the Olaparib question: Can you give that with pembro? There's not really a lot of safety data on that. Um, should be fine. There's not overlapping toxicities. I personally don't think there's any safety concerns in doing so. I would be comfortable. Uh, We've not specifically had that come up since BRCA mutations are still fairly rare. Um, So we've not seen that, but I would not be opposed to going ahead and starting it uh, with the PEMBRO if it could be covered, of course, from there. And like you said, it's a little complicated with the NCCN guidelines as to if we should count on it. I think the other thing to consider with some of these therapies, though, is timing. So as I mentioned, they're getting a whole lot of chemotherapy up front. Oftentimes, either if they get PEMBRO or not, when you go to add more chemo after their surgery, it's really hard for patients. They're fatigued. They still have some residual toxicities. They're ready to be done. So we've had a lot of instances, um, again, more with capecitabine, since that's become part of our normal practice, where maybe we'll send them for radiation, continue the PEMBRO, do their radiation, give them a chemo break, and then add the capecitabine on later. Um, So I think conceivably with Olaparib, it'll be a similar discussion of giving them a little bit of time to recover their counts uh, before we throw on the Olaparib and know that we could be affecting their anemia anyway.
1: Thank you for that. Wow, so complex, isn't it? Job security. (laughs) absolutely (laughs) is. You know it as an oncology pharmacist. (laughs) We always have that, that's for sure. Uh, talk about genetic testing at your institution and any challenges you face.
0: Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge across the country is probably lack of genetic counselors, but that's a conversation for another day. But I think what's really become a bit more clear um, over recent time is a bit more about who should get genetic testing. And one of the easiest schools of um, thought here, the easiest rule of thumb for the guidelines is all triple negative patients now should be screen for BRCA mutation. The other big group that affects us a lot is the patients less than 50, Um, less than or equal to 50 should also be screened now. So those are two kind of blanket categories of patients that need testing. And at our center, we really think about that early on during tumor board when the patient's first being presented. Of course, not only is it affecting their pharmacologic therapy, but potentially their surgical options as well. So we definitely wanna make sure that we're catching these patients. Um, It's a multidisciplinary effort for sure. Somebody at the table will certainly remember it um, and make sure that it gets done and ordered and run stat um, if at all possible. But as I kind of alluded to, I think the biggest challenge with BRCA testing still is um, a difficulty in finding genetic counselors to do the actual counseling part, which is extremely important beyond just getting that result and acting on it.
1: Absolutely. Let's switch gears right now and talk a little bit about treatment-related adverse effects and mitigation strategies. So talk to me about the importance of early identification and management of those treatment-related toxicities that you see in your early-stage breast cancer patients.
0: Yeah, so I think with any any treatment, early identification of toxicities is key for adherence um, and making sure that patients are able to complete their intended course. A lot of these regimens that we're talking about are prolonged courses, but they also have very, very strong data and results if we can get people through. So I think it is key that we are identifying and managing these toxicities early so that we're able to optimize our doses and make sure patients get through as much of the intended regimen as they possibly can so that they have the best chance long-term. So a lot of side effects, lots of drugs, lots of side effects. We know Those two things go together. Um, So it is a challenge for sure. Um, I think implementing some of these newer therapies like immunotherapy opens up a whole new realm of toxicities that at least in the breast cancer world, we haven't had as long of a history of managing those toxicities than our colleagues in say melanoma uh, who certainly have.
1: Absolutely. And now we know adjuvant abamacyclob has become a thing in early breast cancer for certain patients that are high risk early stage breast cancer, hormone receptor positive added in combination with your endocrine therapy. Now, in patients who have side effects that are perhaps intolerable to that abemaciclib, maybe they have really bad diarrhea. How do you approach the conversation with those patients who might be opposed to dose reducing that abemaciclib because they might be concerned if that might affect the efficacy of the drug?
0: Yeah, that's, it's a common question. I think one way to approach it is with good counseling up front. Uh, the diarrhea, as you mentioned, is really the main patient-reported side effect that we encounter, um, the neutropenia being the other dose-limiting toxicity that the patient doesn't necessarily experience um, symptoms to. Uh, But that diarrhea, we know, is an early side effect, and we know that it subsides um, pretty quickly within the first couple of weeks or a month. Uh, So that's one of the first things that I try to express to patients is this isn't forever. Uh, We're talking about a long treatment course of two years, but the diarrhea should not uh, be going on for that long. So stressing that point, stressing the importance of self-management making sure that they have supportive care on hand uh, to be able to get through that toxicity um, but sometimes, all that being said, we do end up needing to dose reduce them, whether it is for the diarrhea or neutropenia or fatigue, any of these other kind of common toxicities that we run into. And I think definitely for that case, a little abemaciclib is better than no abemaciclib. So I would rather uh, dose reduce it if we have to um, and continue on treatment and not get too stressed out by that. Make sure the patient doesn't get too stressed out by that because we don't want them to feel that um, unnecessary anxiety. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a toxic drug. And I think uh, these patients, again, many of them are going to have had chemotherapy already. So they are also fatigued and also still dealing with some toxicities and stressors and costs and all the other factors that go into their treatment. Um, and it's a challenge. It certainly is.
1: You got it. and adjuvant abemacyclob is the only CDK4-6 inhibitor FDA approved today in that early stage breast cancer patient population. But we know data on the Natalie trial with ribociclib is about to be presented at ASCO. Yes. So say you have a patient that really can't tolerate the abemacyclob even with dose reductions and you have to unfortunately stop the agent. Have you ever considered another CDK4-6 inhibitor in early stage breast cancer?
0: Uh, There's been some hesitation in switching CDK4-6 inhibitors because of the negative data that we had with Penelope and Pallas both, Um, but like you said, Natalie has early promising data from their preliminary analysis, and that will be coming out soon. So I think we'll have an alternative option to use in the not-so-distant future, Uh, but at this point, no, we have not gone ahead and swapped over to a different CDK4-6 inhibitor yet.
1: I can respect that. Now, switching gears again a little bit. The toxicity with immune checkpoint inhibitors like pembrolizumab used in early-stage breast cancer, what grade of toxicity do you say, we shouldn't re-challenge these patients, or I'm really concerned about my patient receiving that pembrolizumab? Talk to the audience about toxicity management with the immune-related adverse events of checkpoint inhibitors and when to say enough is enough.
0: Yeah. So fortunately, more of those really severe toxicities are pretty rare. Um, obviously, if a patient has a grade four life-threatening toxicity to your pembrolizumab, we're going to stop it. Or if they have recurrence of grade three toxicity, uh, we would certainly want to stop it at that point as well. And in, in my experience, um, certainly we could treat a lot of these with steroids. But I think you have to go back to your risk benefit overall uh, with adding this therapy. Um, It certainly has improved outcomes when we've given pembrolizumab to patients in terms of their complete response rates and using that as a surrogate marker for long term. Um, But I think we have some other options in breast cancer than again, some of the other disease states like melanoma where immunotherapy is really such a cornerstone. So to me, if you could get through some of your toxicities, you know, the easier ones to deal with, like your thyroid dysfunction and so on, um, certainly want to manage those toxicities and keep the patient on it. But if they are having more of these grade three toxicities, risk benefit might be to still use the very effective chemotherapy that we know works pretty well also. So that's kind of how I think about it.
1: That makes sense. You got it. And Allison, you are an absolute wealth of knowledge. (laughs) It's been such a joy to talk with you. So I have the toughest question of the day for you if you're ready. I'm ready. What would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in today?
0: I will cheat a little and say that it is the fact that there are so many new treatments out there. Um, I don't think we could say that it's one specific treatment because, again, it's not one one singular disease state. So um, I would think looking at the totality of knowing that we have PARP inhibitors with a survival benefit in the early stage setting, adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitors are a game changer in the hormone receptor positive setting, and then I think generally with HER2 therapy, being able to really tailor uh, how many drugs, how long of therapy you're giving to the HER2 positive patients, those kind of each carry equal weight um, for our overall takeaways for this conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Allison. your absolute joy to speak with. And and I'm like sure what? everyone loves to learn from you.
0: <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to PharmacyTimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message.